Is that better? Oh, that works. Oh, excellent. I remember when our family got a VCR for the first time, there was, there was total confusion on the part of anyone over the age of about 10. We didn't know how to operate it, but the children put it all together and it worked fine. <laughs> John chapter 17, beginning in verse 13, our Lord says, But now I come to thee, and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy made full in themselves. I have given them thy word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask thee to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth, Thy word is truth. Let us pray. O our Father and our God, we give you thanks and praise that your word indeed is truth. And it comes to us even by your word incarnate, who you have breathed out from of old, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We ask now, O Lord, that you might bless us from your word that you would help us to think your thoughts after you, to honor and praise and glorify your name, even with our minds, as we follow in your footsteps, and as we think to the best of our ability, O Lord, to say what you say and be transformed by the work of your Holy Spirit, in whose name we pray, amen. Well, in our study of theology, uh, introduction to theological studies, we have looked at a definition of theological studies, and this evening we come to the nature and context of theological studies. There's a little diagram up uh, on the slide, at slide number 13, Uh, personal, uh, the personal nature of theological studies is being highlighted, and the creator-creature distinction particularly. Uh, is being highlighted for you there. The Creator, uh, indicated by the very large circle, the fact that God is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable, and that He is the one who creates the world, calls it into being, and so we must keep straight that Creator-creature distinction. We are not God. He is not us. He has called us into being. He defines who we are. He has made us in his image, after his likeness, according to his free and his holy will. We're not in control of that. And so he is not under or subservient to our wish and will and whim. Theological studies must be done in a way that tips the hat to the creator-creature distinction. This is one of the most commonly confused things uh, in the world, but also even sometimes in the church. I, I have met... Many a man and a woman and even a child before who had the deeply profound uh, wrong impression that all the world orbited about themselves, about their head. You know, we sometimes see little ones like this and we joke that uh, they don't understand anything except what they can see. If it's around the corner, it doesn't exist to them. If it's right there in the room with them, then they know it exists and it's there for their personal pleasure, grabbing, biting, and throwing to the ground. Well, some adults are that way too. Uh, They think that 
they are the definition of love, that they are the definition of right and wrong, that they are the definition of truth. And as we read in John chapter 17, thy word is truth, O Lord, the Son incarnate prays back to his heavenly Father. We must remember that God is indeed there and that we can have a relationship with him because he has made us in his image. And so there is uh, one to whom we can turn in time of need for help. There is one by whom we are measured in whose light we are to behave and live and one to glorify and be devoted to with all of heart and mind. The creator Creature distinction is fundamental. But then secondly, within this overarching truth of the personal nature of the study of theology, we are studying a personal God, a God who is intrapersonal as well as personal towards us. He's God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Three persons, one essence. And this is an old uh, diagram. Uh, You know, it's amazing how you can spice it up by using some uh, neon sign colors. God the Father at the top of the triangle, the Son and the Spirit at the other two bottom corners, and in the center, the essence of uh, uh, depicted, the essence of deity, the divine nature, which is shared alike between the three persons. God the Father is God. God the Son is God. God the Holy Spirit is God. It's not that there are three chaps that just happen to look like each other and share similar attributes, and therefore uh, it's really nice that they happen to... uh, have that same bag of, uh, of qualities about them. No, they share the one undivided divine nature. It's not that the Father's a third God and, and the Son is a third God and the Spirit is a third God. Together they possess true deity. And the three of them are not to be confused with each other. And so this means that there is a personal set of relationships even just within God and within the Trinity. The Father and the Son relate one to another And they relate one to another, not just as two isolated individuals, but in the context of another, in the context of the Holy Spirit. Um, There is the one and there is the many together in this perfect fellowship within the triune God. And so it's not out of need or want or lack that God creates us and calls us into being. It's not that he's lonely and that he uh, thinks that uh, he believes he'll make some creatures that uh, he might have some fulfillment in his life, perfectly fulfilled, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three in one, one in three. Uh, Never a cross word, never a division of mind or will or heart or life, a unity there in perfect fellowship, but God chooses to create us, to create us in his image, and to relate to us personally as the triune God. The Trinity is one of the basic truths of the Christian faith. And it's surprising how often people's theological positions that they'll hold so dearly and so firmly have nothing to do with the Trinitarian nature of God. People will hold tenaciously to a view of end times. They will fight with each other. They will not uh, speak to one another. They're so upset because one's pre-trib, one's post-trib, etc. And at the end of the day, when you begin analyzing their theological system, Nine times out of ten, you ask the question, hold it. Where's the Trinity? Where's the, one of the basic truths of the Christian faith? The Trinity, as we said earlier in the first lecture, and, and the Incarnation are two fundamental, absolutely unique truths of the Christian faith. And if they don't impact your thinking in a certain area 
of theological studies, and something's wrong because they're foundational to the whole. So God is personal towards us. Uh, the triune God is the fount of all personal relationships. If, if you have someone that you love, a spouse or a child or a parent, a friend or a neighbor, if you have someone that you're close to, that you like being in the presence of, that you enjoy having a good cup of tea with, then you are benefiting from the fact that God is triune. We've been made in his image. He's personal, and therefore we are made to be in personal relationship with him and therefore with one another as well. And so God, in speaking to us, in his word, and, and even through the world around us as he speaks basic truths about his nature, he's doing so personally. It's not just words written in the sky. It's not just words printed on a page. It is God reaching out and speaking to and touching you in your life that you might have dialogue, interaction, fellowship with him. But if you turn away from him who's your creator, if you alienate yourself from him, then you're alienating yourself from that which is fundamental to every aspect of your life. You can't despise him in one area of life and then call upon him to help you in another. You have a holistic relationship, personal relationship with the triune God. But more than that, you also have a propositional uh, relationship with God and with the study of him and of all that he is to you. The study of theology the proper nature of theology is also propositional. Uh, Francis Schaeffer uh, said, God is there and he is not silent, title of one of his great works. Uh, he, God has spoken to us. He has communicated with us. It's not that he's made the world and gone and hidden in some far corner of the galaxy. That's a very interesting idea, that, that concept of deism, the clockmaker God. But, of course, God can't retreat. He can't go away into the far corner of the universe and be forgotten because we're made in his image. We're made for him. We're made for fellowship with him. And if we spurn and reject that, we are living in a context of alienation from him in everything that we do. But Schaefer is pointing out that God is there and that he speaks and therefore he communicates with us, not just kind of in a glancing blow. I remember one time as a youngster, I think I was either a young teen or preteen probably, uh, I was riding my bike one summer in Aiken, South Carolina from our home to that great center of social experience called the Fermata Club. And there were three things that you did at the Fermata Club. One was you could play tennis, and I, I tried that and failed miserably. Uh, the second was you could, do, you could learn ballroom dancing. And that was not a very successful experiment either. But you could also swim and play ping pong on the side. And so I, I swam and enjoyed that and, and rode my bike over there religiously every day, once or twice a day. And, and on the way, way back one time, uh, someone in a car uh, had a, a, a glancing blow encounter with me. Uh, they threw their beer bottle out of the car and hit me on the head as I was riding down the road. It was only that kind of glancing encounter. I mean, it didn't, it didn't hit me square. It sort of clipped me on the top of the head. It was enough to startle me. And thankfully, I fell away from the road instead of into the road. It was a busy four lane, and that would have probably been the end. God, when he speaks to us, is not like someone throwing a bottle or a 
or a ball at somebody else, just having a glancing encounter with them, just that tap on the top of the head. No, God is speaking to us in a rational sort of way. He, it's not just an emotional encounter. God says things to us in propositional statements. The personal on the one hand with God and the propositional are not opposites. They find their unity and fellowship in Him. Acts chapter 4, uh, beginning in verse 23, is a helpful section of Scripture where we see both of these woven together. If somebody could read for us Acts 4, verses 23 to 30, and if they would do so into this fine piece of machinery right here. All right. John, can you read that for us? I will. <clears throat> Acts 4, verses 23 to 30. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted up their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage? And the people's plot in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness, while you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. This is a very interesting prayer, corporate prayer of the church, upon the first wave of prosecution, or persecution against the apostles. Uh, Peter and John have been thrown in jail. They've been threatened. Uh, the authorities are shocked at how much Bible they know, even though they're uneducated and untrained men, supposedly, trained by the best, however. And they turn, uh, when they get back with their compatriots, they turn in prayer to God. It's in a context where they've been threatened. It's in a context where uh, their lives particularly have been threatened. Uh, they've seen their lords suffer and die at the hands of the Roman officials, so they know what these rulers and authorities are capable of. They themselves have every reason to be emotionally responding to God and just trembling on the inside. And what do they do? They speak back to the, their Heavenly Father, back to God, in propositional statements, in the context of an intensely personal and disturbing thing going on, they speak back to God in the propositions that God had sp first spoken uh, to them in. They're quoting Scripture here. They're praying the Word back to God. For example, they're praying in terms of Exodus chapter 20 and of Psalm 146. And then they turn... And they begin praying in verse 25 uh, with regard uh, to Psalm chapter 2. Uh, they are praying about creation. They're praying about providence and the unfolding history of redemption over which the Lord is sovereign. So they're praying about history and the sovereignty of God. They, they include the theological word predestined here in verse 28. And yet at the same time in verses 29 and 30, they're happy to leave themselves in the hands of the Lord for whatever to happen that he thinks is best. And they honor and worship Jesus in their prayer by praying in the name of thy holy servant Jesus in verse 30. 
So propositions and facts are used here in prayer back to God. Propositions that God has first given, they return to him and they take comfort and they take encouragement in this because these facts are inherently personal. These facts are inherently relative or uh, have a relation to uh, their fellowship and their personal relationship with the living God. Sometimes you'll hear the claim that people are more important than truth. And what's wrong with that statement uh, is that uh, it's a, you know, if they ask you in the more naughty way, which is more important, people or truth? And the answer is, well, both are important because God is truth. People are important because God has created them, but truth is important because God himself is truth. And so we can be faced with a false dichotomy when someone tries to say, now, which are you going to do? Uh, what's good to peop- for people or what people will like or what is true. And uh, we need to make sure that when someone speaks in that kind of double-minded fashion that some spiritual alarm bells go off for us. And not that we respond angrily or grit our teeth or growl, but you should smile knowingly and shake your head and recognize and give thanks that your Lord has been so kind to you as to not put you in that kind of position. He speaks to you personally and he speaks to you propositionally and he does so both at the same time. But the study of theology is not only personal and propositional, both. It is also biblical in the most general sense of the term. Now, we can turn in the Old Testament to Psalm 119. And there the entire chapter would serve as a lesson for the importance, uh, the normative importance of the Word of God and the law of God uh, for the Christian life. Verse 12 of Psalm 119 says, Blessed art thou, O Lord, teach me thy statutes. And in verse 18 we read, Open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things from thy law. And in verse uh, 97 we read, Oh, how I love thy law, it is my meditation all the day. And verse 103, How sweet are thy words to my taste, yes, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Verse 125, I am thy servant. Give me understanding that I may know thy testimonies. God's word to us teaches us about him. It conveys propositional information to us about the true and personal God. In other words, God has concentrated his revelation to us in this place and so speaks to us from here in true and living relative sentences. That is, sentences that are relevant to our life that impact us and make a difference. 2 Thessalonians is another place to look in the New Testament. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 10. And with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. Here the Apostle Paul is speaking about the lawless and those who follow the lawless one and they're defined as those who do not receive the love of the truth and therefore are not saved. We, if we are believers, if we're Christians, we are lovers of the truth because we're lovers of God. We receive his word we receive his, a relationship with him and his spoken uh, truths to us in his scripture. In 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16, classic chair text that we always need ringing in our ears, the graphe, the writing, all scripture, 2 Timothy 3.16, is God-breathed 
and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. It's the writing on the page, Paul says, the graphe in the original, that is God-breathed or inspired, as we say in English, profitable for these many different things in our Christian lives. Now, that little word inspired is, is just downright irritating. And the problem is not with the Bible or the original Greek. The problem is with our English. You know, English is a very uh, flexible language. Um, I'm learning in my old age that to be bad can mean good. Not just in an upside-down ethical way, but just in a linguistic way. That, that, a, that the range of meaning for bad has now been extended in popular language to include good on certain occasions, normally normally signaled or indicated by the twang in one's voice or how many syllables you stretch that out into. In the same way here, we have a phenomenon where we say the Scripture is inspired. Actually, literally it says the Scripture is expired, breathed out. But, of course, what's the problem when I stand up in front of you and say the Scripture is expired? Well, then you think to yourself, oh, its sell-by date is past. It's like the milk. It needs to be poured down the sink. It's of no use to anyone. It'll make you sick if you drink it. When the exact opposite is true, it's good for you in all these wonderful ways. All Scripture is God-breathed, breathed out by God. It's a very unique term here, a term that Paul builds. God is the one who is doing this. He breathes out his word through his holy prophets and apostles uh, under the direction of his son and the, the inspired writing, literally the text in front of you is uh, what is from God, breathed out by him, and so useful in all these different ways. After the first of the year, we're going to look at the doctrine of Scripture more narrowly, and we'll see how it is that God can breathe out a text through a sinful man, and yet it can all be good. And we'll also begin to see, in that from the Christological analogy, that the Son of God is good and righteous and holy, even though he's human. It has a human body and a human soul. So good can come among men in the most amazing and divinely inspired or divinely acted sort of way. The study of theology is personal and propositional and biblical. And the study of theology is more narrowly or with more emphasis exegetical. That is, the meaning is drawn out of the text. When your mother tells you to clean your room, you have a simple ethical choice to make. You will either do what she says or you will seek to obtain a degree in linguistics right there on the spot and twist and turn her words into something they're not. There's a part of me tempted to say, never trust a linguist, at least some of them. You see, when your mother says clean your room, that's not a metaphor for Think about cleaning your room. When your mother says, clean your room, that doesn't mean for your brother or your sister to do this job. It means you are to do it. When your mother says, clean your room, that does not mean that you should do it if you'd like to. And the part of her instruction that doesn't appeal to your fleshly nature, you'll just ignore. You must take her text, what she has said, her propositional statement, and you must interpret that not by inflicting your own meaning on it, but drawing out what she has said. 
And you must take into account other things that she has said. For example, if you have not paid attention to her previously, then you may well have seen the fangs of her wrath at some point in your life, maybe focused in particular directions. And that wouldn't necessarily be all bad. The study of theology is exegetical in the sense that the Bible is something that we should seek to understand. It's not just a source book of major themes that are to be spun by us, like we find the theme of the love of God over here in this text, and we find the theme of the brotherhood of man over in another text, and we pick up these two ideas and we begin to play with them and make them into whatever we want. The Bible is not a book full of notes, as it were, where you take a an A-sharp from over here, and you take an E-flat from over here, and you begin constructing a symphony that suits yourself. No, the study of theology is propositional. So you study the text of Scripture, you seek to understand what it says, to come to a knowledge of what the text says by drawing the meaning out, not inflicting your own prejudices and your own ideas. We must seek, therefore, to understand the mind of the human author first. We do not go out on a hill and hold the Bible in our hand and lift it up and pray that we will receive a divine revelation of what the Bible says. Uh, That sounds very dramatic. Some religious traditions operate in that fashion. But what God tells us to do is to listen, to open, to read, to let it ring in our ears and then in our hearts and in our lives. By connection on a creational level with the other human authors, with the human authors of Scripture, because they speak human language like we speak human language, because they speak in sentences and in paragraphs like we speak in sentences and in paragraphs, we have, through the due use of ordinary means, you might need a dictionary, you might need a grammar or two, Maybe you need to have recourse to the Internet for a little bit of help in understanding some grammatical features. But but in the due use of ordinary means, you can come to understand what the Bible is saying in those clear portions of Scripture. God speaks to us through the human author, and the mind of the human author is our first port of call. But the Bible is not just a sentence or a paragraph. It's, It's a book of books, and so as you compare one author's intent with another author's intent in one portion and another, you begin to fill out the wider teaching of Scripture. And you can begin to see more clearly the intent of the divine author, which because of inspiration, the Holy Spirit carrying along the human authors of old, under the sovereign direction of Almighty God, the human author's intent is coincident with the mind of God. There They're always in line with the mind of God at these various points. But the mind of the divine author is larger and more comprehensive. We begin to catch a bigger picture of the whole as we compare one portion with another. And so when we come to the Bible, we're asking the question, what did Moses mean by this text in Genesis? We're asking the question, what did Isaiah mean in Isaiah chapter 7 or chapter 9? What did Paul mean in Galatians? What did John mean in his first epistle? We're asking about the human author, and as we come to an understanding of what the human authors mean in those places, we begin to synthesize and and understand the larger picture 
of what God is teaching in his word. So I may not like, on a cultural level, the idea that the Apostle Paul says that women are to be submissive to their husbands. I may not like that idea on a cultural level, but God has said it through the human author. He has a, an overall bigger picture and intent and reason for saying this in the great drama that we are to be living out as his children. And therefore, I bow my will and my cultural tastes and my habits of mind to his. I submit to the divine mind, even as the Son of God incarnate submitted his human mind to that of the divine. Uh, We could change to another topic. Uh, In Genesis chapter 1, the issue about what the word day means is not an issue that I settle based upon what will make me popular in the laboratory or in the workplace or in the, in the university or help me get published in a certain journal or, or get me a grant by this or that foundation. The definition of the word day in Genesis 1 and the beginning of Genesis 2, the first port of call is to say, hold it, what does Moses mean by this term? We start with the human author and then we begin to understand that teaching in the light of the rest of Scripture and we catch on to the bigger picture the wider intent of the divine author. We settle arguments about the Christian faith and about theology exegetically. That's exactly what happens in Acts chapter 15 as the church faces uh, some of the hard questions about the Gentile mission. Do we circumcise or do we not circumcise Gentiles that, that come into the Christian faith? And the church's way of settling that matter which couldn't be settled in a local church, was to take it to the wider church. The wider church, the impact of it multiplied by the presence of the apostles. But the apostles and elders in Jerusalem do what? They sit down together and they do exegesis. They argue over what the text of the Bible says. And so exegesis is part of the nature of proper theological study. I have a friend who once uh, was with someone who bragged that they had never read any book but the Bible over the last 30 or 40 years of their life. And uh, while that's an extreme position to take, we need to be reading the Bible and lots of other things too. It is right in tipping the hat to the fact that the Bible is unique. It's the exegetical authority and fount from which we gain our theology. The study of theology is also spiritual. Spiritual, Acts chapter 4. We read earlier, but we didn't read verse 31. Acts 4.31 says, And when they had prayed, the place where they would gathered together was shaken. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness. Notice that those personal propositions that God had given them and that they prayed back to him, they took comfort and assurance and confidence in the midst of persecution and praying to him in that way. The Holy Spirit also is a very big part of their study of theology in this doxological and almost, from a human point of view, desperate kind of context. The study of theology is therefore spiritual. The Holy Spirit is involved. He leads. He guides. Has he not given you, by his kind and gracious providence, that book sitting in your lap? He is the one who carried the apostles and prophets of old along and gave them the words that they were to say. And so rightly in 1 Corinthians 2... Beginning in verse 6, the Apostle Paul speaks to us of the spiritual nature 
of understanding God and of studying God. For we do not speak wisdom among those who are mature, or wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing. Yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature, a wisdom, however, not of this age, nor the rulers of this age who are passing away. But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory, the wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood. For if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. And another quotation here from Isaiah 64. But just as it was written, things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard, yet which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. For to us God revealed them through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the Spirit of man which is in him? Even so the thoughts of God no one knows except the Spirit of God. You can think back to that creator-creature distinction. Here Paul is arguing that, the, that man in the creaturely realm has two aspects to his nature. We have a corporal aspect, a human body, and we have an incorporeal aspect, which is a soul. And the spirit of a man speaks forth that which is inside of a man. And by analogy, that's an analogy to the fact that God, the triune God, in speaking to us, it's his spirit that speaks to us about what is inside God. How do you know what God is like on the inside? What he's really thinking, what he's really up to, what he's really doing. You know it because his spirit has revealed it to us. Paul is saying here in verse 10 and 11. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might know things freely given to us by God, which things we speak not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts and spiritual words. Natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, cannot understand them, because they are spiritually appraised. Here he's building a case for exegesis of Scripture, from the fact that God is the one who owns those words, and his Spirit reveals to us what those words mean. It's not human wisdom it's divine wisdom it's spiritual wisdom and so the study of theology must be bathed in a recourse to the holy spirit of god now again that does not mean we go out on a hill and with the bible closed we lift our hands toward heaven and try to get some quiver in the liver the point here is is that the spirit speaks to us and operates in this ordinary means of grace way speaks to us by and through his word and so We study his word that he has delivered to us. We compare one part with another. Some things are more clear in one place than they are in another place. And so we can come to have his mind. We can speak his thoughts after him. Why is all this possible? How do we know that it's possible? Because of the incarnation in the Trinity. God is triune and so the spirit of God can speak to us. And the fact that the son of God takes on human flesh and dwells among us means that there's hope for us to understand. If God speaks to us with a human tongue and with human teeth and lips, then we have a chance of understanding God even as he has spoken to us in the flesh. It means that the accommodation of God to us is something that takes place without overthrowing the truth aspect of God. It's possible for a human being to tell you the real true truth. Jesus Christ does that. He never misleads you. And so he who was filled with the Spirit without measures, in speaking to us, we can have his mind, even because his Holy Spirit 
gives it to us from his word. And that's personal, and that's propositional, and that's biblical and exegetical. But it's also spiritual. I've known some men who are great Bible scholars, great religion scholars, great scholars of the religions of the world, and and they actually know some Bible. They can quote some passages to you. But you know, it's so plain and obvious when they know a lot of texts and traditions, but they don't know the guy who wrote it. They don't have a relationship with the true and living God if the Holy Spirit is not one with whom they are familiar through worship, through study, through devotion of heart, if they respond not kneeling before the Creator as a proper creature should, but in arrogance asserting themselves as being above Him and over Him and judging Him and slicing and dicing His Word and taking what they like and throwing away the rest and making something new and different out of those scraps that they have chosen, then they have not the Holy Spirit. They are taking the Word of God and using it as an occasion for the sport of their own desires and feelings. The nature of theology is also historical. Now, um, we could spend days, weeks, and years on this point, but let me just note for you that you're not alone. Um, You can turn to the right and turn to the left, and you see somebody sitting near you, in front of you, or behind you. And... uh, We all together in this place are but a small sample of the great company of those who love the Lord and enjoy together the communion of the saints. If you're united to Christ, if you are one who by faith and by the Spirit is united or wed with Him, then you find yourself not only with a head to follow, but with arms and legs and fingers and toes. Brothers and sisters in the faith who God intends for you to be with and to minister and for them to and for them to minister to you down through the years. Augustine is my brother. Irenaeus is my brother. Tertullian is my brother. And those are tr- three church fathers that, that many folks fail to realize are actually brothers in the faith that we have a real union and communion with in Christ. It's not only okay, it's downright uh, smart for me to listen to them and to go back and read what Augustine said on the Trinity, to read what Irenaeus said about how heretics operate and how they confuse the creator-creature distinction, and and to read Tertullian, uh, particularly on the Incarnation and the Trinity. It's important for me to listen to those voices that have come of old. There was a good old Scottish theologian, James Orr, who wrote a book entitled The Progress of Dogma, the main point of which was down through the centuries, the Lord in his providence has brought certain doctrines to to the mind of the church, has broken forth light from the word to the thinking of the church corporately uh, in stages. And so he traced down through the centuries how the study of theology proper, what God is like in his essence, was one of the first topics in the first few centuries. And the Trinity as another topic after that. And then the person of Christ and following it, the work of Christ, all became focal points of interest in the thinking and life of the church in later centuries. So by the time you get to the Reformation era, soteriology, justification, sanctification, these basic truths taught uh, in the Word of God about our Christian life become very fundamental and foundational. 
By the time you get to the 18th and 19th century, a lot has been hammered out about the church and worship and the sacraments. And then his hope was in the 20th century we would be settling the topic of eschatology so that Jesus could come back and we could all go to the new heavens and new earth and not have to struggle over these things anymore. Unfortunately, he didn't uh, live long enough to see the settlement on eschatology. I'm not sure that any of us in this room will live long enough to see the settlement on that. But there is a certain order in which God and his providence brings these things to the mind and consciousness of the church. Uh, perhaps the first run-through on these topics of theology or places or loci of theology, this first run-through will be the first of a thousand or a million cycles, I don't know. But uh, we do our study of theology, not alone on an island, condemned to repeat every mistake that every believer's made before who's thought about this issue, but we stand on the shoulder of others. And so if all we know about theology is what we got from our Bible and we didn't read any other book, then something's wrong because we're not the first believers to think about these things. We need to know what Burkhoff said and Bavink and even Burkow. But we need to understand what Jonathan Edwards said on a subject. I dare you to read Jonathan Edwards. Uh, the great John Gerstner uh, used to go lecturing in theological seminaries, had a standing offer any, I don't think it was just the seminarians, to any live human being who would vow to him before God that they would read it in two years, in one year, in 12 months, that he would give a free copy of the giant folio banner truth, two, two giant volume edition of, of Jonathan Edwards. And if you would read it, you could have it. But you had to vow to do that. And uh, if you uh, vowed and took the books and didn't finish, he was most upset. But uh, we need to stand on the shoulders of other greats that have come before. You need to even study Charles Hodge. I mean, he was at Princeton. That's okay. Don't hold that against him. You need to study Thornwell. You need to study Dabney and Jerido and others. You need to stand on the, the shoulders of believers that have come before as they've thought deeply about the Trinity and about the Incarnation, about the nature of salvation, the doctrine of, of adoption, the, the relationship between a definitive sanctification where God says, you're a holy one. Holy ones to the church at Corinth. But yet at the same time, he calls them to be more holy, to seek Christ's likeness. How is it that we're holy or declared holy, but yet at the same time, we progressively work towards straining every nerve to show ourselves approved and to honor the Lord with the way that we live and think together. The doctrine of the church. A lot of people make enormous mistakes in this life because of a, a, a poorly derived doctrine of the church uh, we need the plurality of eldership. We, we need the safe context of biblical church discipline. We need um, a proper form of worship in which we can make sure that we're listening to God and seeking to honor Him on His terms rather than recreating for ourselves what we like. And we even need eschatology. We stand on the shoulders of others who think about these things that go before us. So there is a historical context to our study of theology. But there's also a wider cultural context. And uh, if this slide doesn't scare you with ten isms on it, then your, your soul is unshakable, I think. 
I will just run through these very quickly uh, as we approach a point of having a midway break. Uh, and Dr. Stacy can look at these and these kinds of things and this context in which we live with, with more helpful focus for you. There are ten myths of our modern age and even our postmodern age. One is individualism. The idea that you are self-sufficient, that you're sovereign, uh, that this is a fundamental concept of your life and everyone else is around you, uh, that society and others are secondary. Uh, I'm the master of my fate. I'm the captain of my soul. Many have boasted that in our day uh, right before they hit the rocks. But individualism is something off of which you can build or attempt to build an entire society for a period of time. And this has come in the modern age to almost define the American life and the American dream. But then there's secularism, another major trend, the removal from successive sectors of society, any decisive influence of religious ideas and institutions. Your mother whispered to you as she was feeding you your Cheerios, don't talk about religion and politics (laughs) and so we feel as if we need to wall off those into a very narrow aspect of life and keep them out of the marketplace or maybe you've heard the words you can't legislate morality and uh, the problem with that kind of a statement is it doesn't recognize the fact that every kind and piece of legislation has a moral reference or compass So you also can't not legislate morality. Or pluralism. This is a favorite one of our day. The multiplication of opinions of people from different spheres of faith or different worldviews or ideologies. And the quiet assumption or the bold claim that they're all ultimately equal. That all of them are just the same. That that really there's only a functional use of these things, a utilitarian use. And so, you know, your religion helps you get through life, my religion helps me get through life, and we all end up uh, in the same place at the end. Minority faiths and minority views in this kind of a context can go from a status of toleration even to special privilege in the hands of some Pluralism, a complex idol with which to have to deal these days. Uh, Privatism, that claim that, well, that's just a part of personal life. And it's not relevant to public life and discourse. Uh, The idea that the public sector involves government and politics and business and economics Production, technology, science, and facts. And then tucked away in that other realm of life, that other story, is religion and morality. Taste, belief, value, whatever we happen to mean by that. Or there's relativism. The claim that there's nothing, no such thing as absolute truth, that We have beliefs, we don't have truth. We have values, we don't have universal rights and wrongs. Uh, It's a way of trying to cope with a complex marketplace of ideas by just making them all ultimately 
equal and valid. Usually within that system, it's okay to believe anything you want to as long as you don't violate the fundamental premise, which is that what you think doesn't have to be what I think. Or pragmatism. What works is right. Truth, principles, morality, religion, those are secondary issues. Good is measured by how well it worked. The ends justifies the means. If I had a nickel for every time I'd met a church leader with the title ruling elder or teaching elder or deacon or just lowly pew warmer who thought in terms of pragmatism, I'd be a rich man. It is everywhere on every hand. I was having a conversation with somebody earlier today and they were asking in this area, why do people do this? I said, because we would sell our grandmother if the price was right. Pragmatism. If it works, that's what we do. Progressivism. You know, it may not be right now, but we're at least headed in the right direction. Everything's getting better. What we're doing in the moment, as long as our intention in that is good, that's what's really important. Change. Change is divine. Just for its own sake. Um, What's old is obsolete. And you know, people love that slogan until they get into their late 50s or early 60s, and then they get a little nervous about that idea. They ought to. (laughs) Oh, history is bunk, as Henry Ford said. But in taking that attitude of progressivism, we are buying into the tyranny of the moment, of the present. We are rejecting all that have come before. And then there's technophilia or rationalization that God and nature have been replaced by technology and technique. Uh, you can classify, you can cert- calculate, you can control, predict, quantify. What's a really important thing in the church? It's not the preaching of the word. It's not the worship of God. What's really important? It's, you know, fill in the blank. Growth. Entire volumes are written on how to analyze the church with no care or interest to the preaching of the word or the authority of God or sovereignty of God, etc. Now again, it's like all these other things. You know, if something doesn't work, it's good to know that ahead of time. And if, uh, if the old is bad, then, then the new may be good. <laughs> if on a particular point, those that have come before have made a mistake. And it is important for us to come to an understanding of the rightful implication of our Lord's admonition to us in a modern age, the implication of of his command to be hospitable. So when somebody walks in the door of the church, we should care about whether there's a seat for them to sit in and whether they can feel comfortable and not be obstructed by lots of other things as they come in to hear the word of God. But that doesn't mean that the how-to and the technique replaces the content. And that's the danger of rationalism. Some people think that if you can do it on a computer or on the Internet or with a website or whatever, that electronically somehow that's inherently better. And it ain't necessarily so, to quote a great theologian. Naturalism. The belief that the universe is eternal and self-existent. There is no God. We're fairly highly evolved machines. 
There's no meaning to history. Kind of the opposite end of the spectrum from spiritism. I rode on a plane just the other day with someone who, with great seriousness and fervor, told me that uh, we were just uh, an evolutionary step along the way, and fairly soon we were all going to be replaced by computers and robots and machines, that humans would therefore no more be needed. And the most frightening thing was he was dead serious about that. And antinomianism. Not just a theological heresy uh, in the Puritan age, but a universal propensity in fallen man to assert freedom for ourselves, freedom from law, freedom from responsibility, freedom, freedom from constraint, freedom from obedience, freedom from commitment. Nobody can tell me what to do or how to live. No one has a right to hold me accountable. I can do whatever I wish. And so we come full circle back to kind of a temper tantrum form of individualism. All of these things provide portions of that wider context in which we seek to do theology. And so as we come to study Scripture, God and the Trinity, man and the fall, as we come to understand the person and work of Christ, the application of that to us by the Holy Spirit in in the doctrine of salvation, uh, the glories of the doctrine of the church and the worship of God and, and the return of our Lord, personal and powerful. We do well to remember these ten voices which call out to us to deviate from the proper path. These ten gravitational pulls that we feel at one time or another. And we must fix our eyes upon Jesus and follow him faithfully all the way through, listening to what he has said, even as by his Spirit he has poured out his word through his apostles and prophets of old. Well, let's take a break for five minutes. Folks, we're very near the end here of the sort of the first part of our school of theology on sort of the the nature of theology. What is theology? So this is kind of, I don't know, I find this kind of an exciting time. When we were together last, you probably recall, we looked through a couple chapters out of bite-sized theology, and we talked about, you know, that famous passage from Hebrews 5 about the spiritual milk versus the solid food, and and you recall that the Spiritual milk doesn't necessarily apply simply to, you know, the easy stuff, or it's for the dumb people, or, or it's just for young kids. It's really, it's, it has to do with more with maturity, not, not even chronological age, but maturity in the faith. But even the milk is, is the truth, right? I mean, that's, that's kind of the point that, that uh, Jeffrey makes here anyway. We also talked about how Christians, at least some Christians, have sort of just following our culture, really, have sort of developed this sort of uh, dualism in the way they live their lives. That is, they have sort of the compartment, the box, that is the stuff of God, the spiritual stuff, and they have another box where they put the, the secular stuff, their, their work, their, other, their, their friendships, other stuff. So, they, you know, remember we talked about Schaefer had this sort of the, the, the two-story approach. He had the idea of a building where on the first floor you have sort of the, uh, you know, the rational, the public stuff, the objective stuff, the universal facts. 
On the upper story, you have sort of the personal things, the non-rational stuff, all that religious belief of yours and so forth. This, this is, Schaefer isn't just making this up. This is an observation he's making about the culture we live in. And this, I think, remains true even to this day. We see the, the fruits of it in our culture now. Today, I want to just push forward a little bit, look at the next couple chapters in Jeffrey here, and, and reflect on some of the things that we heard uh, Dr. Rankin talking about just a, a few moments ago. I thought I might start by sharing, this is one of my favorite stories in Scripture. I remember many years ago, my wife can attest to this, uh, we heard uh, a, a sermon on this uh, passage by the great uh, the Scottish uh, pastor, Eric Alexander. Uh, and I, I, if you've never heard an entire sermon <coughs> done with a Scottish accent, everything sounds better. Everything sounds more persuasive. And clearly that is the word of God if it's coming from a Scottish accent. Amen. <laughs> exactly. I'm, yeah. It, it doesn't matter who it is. It, doesn't, it probably doesn't even matter what they're saying, I suppose. <laughs> it's got to be right. Exactly. But he preached on this passage from Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 6. You know the passage well, but let me read some of the a few verses here. Isaiah says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. That's just the first verse. I know I'm going to stop and pause anyway. Think about this. Some of you will be too young to know what I'm talking about, but those of you who have been around a few years and you've, you're a football fan, you've watched the Super Bowl. And remember, there was a series for a number of years, a series of advertisements at the end, some, some player who had just been through the game, they would stop him and say, you know, uh, Joe Montana, you just won the MVP. What are you going to do now? And remember what he said? I'm going to Disney World, exactly. See, it's a cultural phenomenon. can't be helped. <laughs> Isaiah is describing right here, I saw the Lord. And I don't know about you, that's better than winning the MVP of the Super Bowl. And my question for him is, Isaiah, you just saw the Lord. Tell me about it. What did you see? And you see what he says? The train of his robe, the thing that sticks out that he drags behind him when he walks, that thing filled up the temple. The grandest building I can think of was overwhelmed by the least little bit of God at the back. That's what I saw. Now, I don't know about you. There are other things... Um, Isaiah, could you elaborate? What, what about the front part of his robe? What about his head? What did, what did that stuff do? The best he can do for us is to say, the, the grandest thing you can imagine is overwhelmed by the least little bit of him. And that's sort of Isaiah's view on this. But look, he doesn't stop there. Above him stood, he says, the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now again, that's three verses. I'm going to pause again. You've heard many times in scripture repetition, and you probably are, are well aware that it was sort of a Hebrew literary technique. In fact, repetition was a form of emphasis. If you, they didn't, so we have adjectives and adverbs to kind of help us do that. We say something is, you know, somebody is very tall. We mean tall, but more so, Right? They didn't have that kind of sort of grammatical usage. They would just say it twice. He's tall, tall. I know that sounds kind of odd, but in Hebrew, I'm sure it sounded much better, and there's probably some phlegm involved. <laughs> on rare occasions, it does not happen in, 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 in Scripture very often, but on the rarest of occasions, there won't be repetition twice. They'll say it three times. And look, this is one of those occasions. 
holy, holy, holy. That doesn't just mean very holy. It means completely holy. There is no more holy than this. He's all of it. He is holy, 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 say the angels around him, the cherubim, the seraphim. And what do they say? So remember, Isaiah says, well, the little bit of his robe there overwhelms the temple. The whole earth is full of his glory. This is all just Isaiah kind of just telling us what he saw. And, of course, what happens next? The foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, now this is really, why did I bring this up? Because I like those first few verses. But I like this next part as well. And this is important for us. This is what I want us to think about for a second. What is Isaiah? So he's just witnessed all of this. He's just heard the cherubim sort of singing the praises of God. How does Isaiah react? Verse 5, he says, woe is me. Translate this for you. I'm a dead man. Woe is me, I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell amidst a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Literally, he fears for his life. Woe is me, I am undone, I am destroyed. I'm in serious trouble because I'm a sinner. I dwell with sinners. And this is, this is his view of God. When he sees God, what's his first reaction is to, oh, I am unworthy. I am wretched. You see what he's saying here about the nature of God. God is so perfectly holy. He is so righteous. He is so complete. And I am so unholy. I am so sinful. I shouldn't even be in his presence. Now, we could go on. We don't have to go all night. We could read the whole, we could read all of Isaiah if you want. God doesn't leave it at that. And now, you know, Isaiah's not wrong. He's right. He is a man of unclean lips, and he doesn't deserve to be in the presence of God. But look what God does. This is, this is maybe my favorite part. Verse 6. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. So you can imagine sort of the altar set up for a sacrifice, and it's burning. There's the hot coals there, and the angel takes one of those hot coals. It just doesn't sound pretty to me. And he touched my mouth. Ouch. And he said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. You understand how God makes it possible for Isaiah to be there, right? So Isaiah is a man of unclean lips, no denying it. God purifies him. God forgives him. He cleans up that sin for him. Notice how the, and, the, and God does this. It wasn't like Isaiah said, hey, give me one of them coals. i got to take care. No, it's not Isaiah doing this, right? So it's, it's a beautiful image here. And of course, I, we don't need to go into this. What happens next? Well, he sends Isaiah on a task. This is, you know. You're my God. What do you want me to do? Well, I've got something for you to do. I've got a message for you to take. But I want you to see, I mean, why are we talking about this in this context? Jeffrey here, in the third chapter of Bite-Sized Theology, tries to tackle the concept of God. I don't know, if, did, you, did you do your reading assignment? I was going to give a quiz. I like to, when I, uh, when I teach at the university, I always give a quiz. Just a little tiny quiz. Like, I, I've gotten very good at this over the years. I give them usually one question that if you have read this chapter... It is easy, and you get an A. If you have not read this chapter, it is impossible, and you get an F. <laughs> I've gotten good at this. I can, I can do this pretty well. But I didn't do it to you because, you know, you don't pay tuition. <laughs> you pay attention, which is better, actually, yeah. <laughs> chapter 3 is simply entitled God. And he's talking about the nature of God here. And it's worth spending some time with it here. If you have the book, turn to page 17 with me. It's the beginning of chapter 3 there. You'll see it because it's not numbered. So if you see no page number, that's probably 17. And here's what Jeffrey says in the first sentence. 
if our thinking about God is not correct, then every other doctrine we apply our minds to will also be incorrect. This is, it almost has kind of the ring of some of those, those scriptural passages, all of them. What are the exceptional concepts here? What is left out of that? Nothing. If you're wrong about God, you'll be wrong about everything. So, again, speaking of the nature of God, yes, perfectly holy. He's also, he is the source of all that is truth. And you can't have truth apart from him. And that's, to his credit, Jeffrey leads with that. If you get this wrong, so it's near the beginning of the book. If you get this wrong, you're going to be wrong about everything. So let's try to get it right. Isn't that sort of implied here, right? Now, we won't have to necessarily dwell on every single word of this piece by piece, but if you look at the headings, actually, I don't know about you, I, I encourage folks to take a look at authors who are at least good at their task. These subheadings are important, and they are useful. And here they are quite useful. Look at the bottom of page 17. The, set, the heading says, what is God like? This is the question. This is what we want to find out. And if you turn over to page 18, he begins to list some of the attributes or the qualities of God. It's not comprehensive. It's not, it couldn't be comprehensive. But look at some of the things he says on page 18, for example, God is holy. See near the bottom there, the truth we are told more than anything else in Scripture about God is that he is holy. And he gives several references. And just think about your own reading of Scripture. How often do we see that? How often do we see God portrayed as holy, perfectly holy, perfectly righteous? Maybe the single most important thing we need to know about God is his holiness. This means that he is free from all sin and evil, and there is in him absolute moral perfection. That's a hard standard to live up to. You will fall short, as will I. On page 19, God is sovereign. If you're, uh, if you're of a Reformed background, that should warm your heart. God is indeed sovereign, and that's a good thing. Look what Jeffrey says here. This means the absolute rule and authority of God over his creation. Skipping the end of that paragraph, he can do what he likes, when he likes, how he likes, and with whom he likes. I love the reference to Job there. I, I love the book of Job. Um, it's a long one to get through, actually. But, but there's some good stuff in there, and especially by the time it's, it, that story is concluded, and Job sort of witnesses and hears from the whirlwind, and, and God asks him, look, uh, here's what I did. Where were you when I was doing that? As much as you want to say, Job suffers and he under, and undergoes a lot of tribulation, and that's hard. But when he kind of, you know, God, I don't deserve this. You know, this is, maybe, this is, maybe there's some kind of mistake. Job, where were you? Who are you to raise that question? If you look carefully on Job, you see God never really even answers Job's question. He questions the question. God is sovereign. And that's really, that's the lesson of that book and so, much, so many other parts of Scripture as well. He says here he's the God of providence. Providence is also kind of a, it's a good Reformed heritage word. I like that word, providence. Jeffrey says here, he is always at work in the lives of his people, so nothing happens to us by chance or luck. We live in a culture where chance and luck are used to describe a great many things, including, for example, how we got to be human beings, which I think is a bit of a stretch. Nevertheless, we, we sort of, anything we don't understand, we kind of just shove that in the category of, oh, chance, could have been anything else, right? I'm not sure. In fact, Scripture seems to say something quite different. God, it says, he says here, God upholds, guides, and governs all circumstances. Skipping a little bit, he says, Paul tells us that God works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. Again, that word, everything. What is God leaving to chance? Looks like nothing. 
Anything not included in the category everything, I guess, is left to chance. One of my uh, favorite passages in the New Testament is out of Colossians. What does he say there? In Christ, all things cohere together. Think about that just for a moment. What does that mean about the role of God in our lives? You would dissolve into nothing in a heartbeat, in less than that, if it weren't for the constant attention of Jesus and God to his creation all the time. There's no moment when we are not wholly dependent on God for our very existence. I mean, think about the implications of that. You might think sometimes, oh, you know, I, I choose this, or I'm going to do that and indulge this, or you wouldn't be here right now if it weren't for God's constant attention. Dr. Rankin, earlier today, earlier this evening, mentioned uh, sort of, you know, the, the, the sort of deism as a, as a sort of uh, modern sort of interpretation of sort of a, an absentee God who, you know, no such thing according to Scripture. God is not absent. God is so present that we are utterly dependent upon him. He's a God of providence. Jeffrey adds here that God is good. You see that? You're on the bottom of page 19. God is good. He is kind and generous, tender-hearted, full of sympathy. And he gives a couple of references from the Psalms there. Psalm 145. We even see it in this little passage from Isaiah, right? God, God has no obligation to save anyone, to, to purify anybody's unclean lips, and yet he does, doesn't he? I mean, look around the room. There are people here who can attest to it. I can attest to it. If you need, if you need another witness, I'm happy to be the one. I didn't do a darn thing that really should attract or bring about God's favor. And yet he is a good God and has kindly, generously reached out to, to us as people. Maybe related, if you flip over to the next page, Jeffrey says that God is love. That's a, you, you've heard that phrase a lot, I'm sure, right? That's sort of a, in our culture that can mean many different things. Look at what Jeffrey says. If God is not love, there would be no hope for any of us. And he goes on to kind of unpack that term love. It's a strange thing. In, in English, we really kind of, we don't have many words to describe that particular set of feelings. So we love chocolate cake. We love our children. Don't mean to be too graphic. We make love to our spouses. You understand what I'm saying here? Same word for all those things. We could use some help. The Greeks had multiple words. And so, but, but, as they begin to unpack and understand what is meant by love, it becomes a much richer and complete thing, right? So Jeffrey even points us to some scripture passages to help out. Romans 5, it is undeserved love. It's not love we earned, right? You know, the lots of things I could love because it loves me first. Lots of things I could sort of, I could have affection for because, yeah, it, it, it does its job. I love my car because it doesn't break down. Yeah, well, there was that one time. And then I didn't love it that day. And notice it says here in 1 John, it is unsought love, right? We love because God loves us, right? We didn't go around, oh, God, please give me a chance. Could, could you take, give me some notice over here? You know, I'm working, re- I'm working really hard. I really love you a lot. That's not how that works, right? There is no love without God. In the same way, there is no life without God. There is no love without God. And as he says, it is unimaginable love. It is very difficult to define the love of God. How, how full is it? How much does he love beyond our reckoning? Whatever that is, I don't know, more than I can handle. When, uh, when Jeffrey kind of walks us through, and this is, of course, look, this is the tip of the iceberg, right? If we, Dr. Rankin, if we wanted to really do a thorough, exhaustive study of the nature of God, how long, how long would that normally take? 
we have like five or ten minutes if that would uh, we could spend a lifetime on that people people have spent lifetimes on that and you will not complete that study that's okay though right because isn't fundamentally isn't that what we're, what we're doing here right now when we talk about theology literally what does that word mean we want to understand we want to know our god and this is the right place to begin i don't think that uh that jeffrey is off the mark when he asks us to consider those features of god you know i hate to do this it sounds confusing could you back up to page 17 again so we just went all the way through the chapter and now we're starting over that's i know that's confusing just the kind of guy i am a third sentence from the top of the page jeffrey says this so some who call themselves christians say he gives a quote here my god would never send anyone to hell have you ever heard anybody say that or something like that? I, actually, I've heard that like, um, many times in my life. I'm sure many of you have as well. And you see the sort of implication there, right? Oh, hell seems like a bad thing. God is just so kind and loving. He wouldn't do that. He wants everybody to be happy and content. And, you know, if you, uh, you can have your best life now. And I shouldn't say that out loud, probably. Yes. You know, Steve, that is perfect. That's exactly what I wanted to suggest here. Isn't that a way of kind of trying to impose our own definition on God, right? I'm, I'm shaping him into my image. Not Obviously, Scripture does it the other way around. We're supposed to be conformed to his image. But in fact, isn't that, when we do that, you're exactly right. My God has these features which I want him to have. It always, this puts me in mind... Remember the story of some those of you who've been in my Sunday school class. You get I, I have like five stories and I repeat them all. So this is a repeat. I'm sorry. But you know that story where where Rachel, of course, you know uh, uh, Jacob's going to flee Laban's house, right? He's taking Rachel with him. Remember Rachel? It says she steals her father's household gods. First of all, that very phrase, the household gods. You, you got various gods, but you got the ones for the household. And what does she do? She stuffs them under her saddle and she sits on them. And so when they get caught, they do, right? They get caught. Laban stops, hey, you're taking my daughters and you're taking my goats and you took my household gods. Jacob says, hey, you know, those uh, goats I earned, the daughters I married, all this is good, and I don't have your household gods. I don't know what you're talking about. And so the search is conducted, and they never do find him because she never gets off the, gets off the saddle. She's sitting right, right there in the gods. Have you ever thought about the nature of those gods? And poor Laban... He was a worshiper, a devout worshiper, and then his gods disappeared. They, just, they were just gone. And you notice that's never resolved in Scripture. At no point is it, oh, well, he got them back. She, you know, she felt bad and mailed them to him. Now, I guess Laban just lost his gods. They're gone. That's, by the way, that is not a peculiar story in a certain sense. In the ancient Near East, very common, every significant household had its gods. Because from their point of view, if anything good ever happened, it must be because the gods had favor. It must be because my gods are doing their job. And so I worship them and I... But, but you notice, they're his gods. Where did they come from? Well, probably they were you know, dead ancestors or something. The point is, he makes them. Laban created those gods. He made them gods. Of course... In that sense, then, he does feel very possessive of them. And so when somebody makes off with his gods, takes it as a personal affront.
Well, what was it? Oh, it was actually there. How many arms did his God have? Some of those Hindu gods have many arms. They certainly do it now. And actually, Steve, I'm going to have to pay you later because this is another perfect segue because this is, this is the point that I want to get to here. Jeffrey paints a picture of the living God, the God of the Bible, right? And you notice here, all these attributes, we don't get to say what those are. We don't get to say how God loves. We don't get to say what his sovereignty consists of or what he's sovereign over. We don't get to say what goodness means. God has already determined that. Those are his attributes, and we, we just live with it. And those are good things. I'm glad he is the way he is. But I don't get to make him into anything at all. I don't get to say my God wouldn't do that. Well, maybe I can say that, and maybe that's true, but that's not the God of Scripture then. And you see, this, you see it in this story of, of Rachel stealing her father's gods. And, oh, he's upset because his gods are gone. And There are other passages in Scripture, too, where we see this. People literally make, in the, in the past at least, we would see, they would literally make gods for themselves. Turn with, if you have a second, let's turn just for a moment. Just take about a second. I know you're ready to go home. Very patient of you. I appreciate it. Jeremiah 10. Jeremiah 10, I'm going to pick up in the uh, latter half of verse 2. Learn not the ways of the nations, Jeremiah says, nor be dismayed at the signs of the heavens, you know, constellations and so forth, because the nations are dismayed at them. For the customs of the people are vanity. You can almost, he almost has Laban in mind or somebody like it, right? The customs of the peoples are vanity. A tree from the forest is cut down, worked with an axe by the hands of a craftsman. They decorate it with silver and gold. They fasten it with hammer and nails so that it cannot move. What are they making? They're making idols. Idols are like scarecrows in a cucumber field. That's just beautiful. Scarecrows in a cucumber field. They cannot speak. They have to be carried for they cannot walk. Do not be afraid of them. For they cannot do evil, neither is it in them to do good. They are worthless. They are made by men. And yet, in the time that Jeremiah writes, in the time of Rachel and Laban and Jacob, and I'm going to suggest to you, in our time as well, we make gods for ourselves. Why? Because we get to define what those are. We control them. It's not the living God of Scripture, but it's something I have some control over. Now, Steve, you may... An observation, you're exactly right. Raise your hand if you've ever carved a wooden idol and worshipped it. Anybody? Anybody at all? Nobody ever raises their hand. I don't know why that is. If, if, if you know, you know, the local neighborhood Hindu, I, every once in a while, doesn't happen often, but every once in a while, at, at, at lunchtime at work, some of my colleagues and I would go to this little Vietnamese restaurant where they serve delicious food, but they have these little Buddhas. I mean, well, they're not little. They're big, fat Buddhas sitting on the counter. And I will watch, you know it's a good Vietnamese restaurant because Vietnamese people eat there. It's not, not for we Caucasians. I feel like I'm an interloper. But what do they do? They pay their bill and they'll take some spare change and they'll, they'll stick it on the various crevices of Buddha. And this Buddha has lots of crevices. And they'll put like a little offering. I don't know what happens to that money at the end of the day. I'm pretty sure they just collect it on up. That's, I don't know. Buddha doesn't seem to get out much and spend it. I don't know where he... They're making an offering to their idol. But most of us don't do that. This is my point, right? We don't carve little wooden statues. We don't put a quarter on Buddha. But do we have idols? All those things that Duncan was talking about earlier, 
Each one of those, and there's more where that came from, all of those isms represent attempts for us. This is how we do it in the 21st century. We make idols for ourselves, and maybe they aren't little carved wooden images. But we say, for example, well, uh, individualism, my own, my own decisions are, should, should guide, and what my, te my tastes and preferences are the most important thing. I, I put my own will where God's will belongs, right? How about relativism? Actually, these things are closely related. There is no such thing as absolute truth, aside from the fact that that statement is a ridiculous assertion of absolute truth. We all know that. Aside from that, step out in front of a speeding bus and see if absolute truth catches up with you at that moment. It will. It's reflective of God's creation, right? There are truths. God made it that way. We just deny. We make up a different set, and we say that, well, what may be true for you may not be true for me, and vice versa. It's just ways that we assert our will over God's. We make our God in his place. We've gotten kind of clever at it. We don't carve them out of wood. We don't necessarily call them gods, because that has kind of a religious connotation. But they take the form of a, be a godlike being, and we worship them. We don't call them gods. We don't call it worship. We don't call it religion, necessarily. But we do it. They are idols. We are, as Calvin says, we are idol factories. We make them. We are very good at it. Sure. Well, that was earned, though, right? <laughs> Not. <laughs> just, to, just to kind of maybe wrap up and conclude here, on page 20, there's this wonderful quotation from Charles Spurgeon. If you've never read Spurgeon, I urge you to do so. He is worth taking the time to look at. But here's this quotation, bottom page 20. Spurgeon writes, Nothing, is so, nothing will so enlarge the intellect, nothing so magnify the whole soul of man as a devout, earnest, continued investigation of the great subject of the deity. Would you lose your sorrow? Would you drown your cares? Then go, plunge yourself in the Godhead's deepest sea. Be lost in his immensity, and you shall come forth as from a couch of rest, refreshed and invigorated. I know nothing which can so comfort the soul, so calm the swelling billows of sorrow and grief, so speak peace to the winds of a trial as a devout musing on the subject of the Godhead. And God willing, we will be doing that here for the next several months together. So um, we're actually way past our time. I do appreciate your patience. Uh, let's, um, let's maybe close together with a word of prayer. Can we do that? Gracious God in heaven, it is uh, always such a beautiful time to spend this time together, to put our minds together, to reflect upon your creation, and more importantly, Lord, to reflect on you and your character and, and the manner in which you love your people. Lord, we are grateful for this opportunity. Look forward to, to many more to come. Please uh, bless each one of us here as we prepare to depart. Send us out with your blessing. Call us together again soon, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you all very much. Your patience is appreciated.